0: This episode of the A.D. History Podcast is brought to you by you, our amazing patron. Thank you for supporting the show and helping us create the A.D. History you deserve. We could not do it without you. Have you ever wondered who the real-life inspiration for Santa Claus is, or just how awful Constantine's progeny
1: was after his death?
0: Well... Do we have a story for you?
1: This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DeCostanzo and Patrick Foote.
0: And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I'm Paul K. D. Costanzo, and I am joined by my co-host Patrick Foote. And Patrick, how is everybody's AD History's favorite heel today? Well,
2: I'm the kind of heel you love to hate. And you told me before this, uh, b- b- before we started recording, Paul, that you're wearing a Montreal baseball jersey from a defunct Montreal team, and they probably left because the city sucks. Am I right, everyone? Ooh, yes. Ooh, he's he's playing heel. He's playing heel.
1: Oh, I'm you got to watch out for those French Canadians, man. They,
2: they,
0: they, they defend their pride to the last. Yes, the Montreal Expos. Just a short aside, I really do love collecting sports jerseys. I've always had. And one of the things I most prize are jerseys from teams that no longer exist. In this case, this is the road jersey for the Montreal Expos and one Vladimir Guerrero. And as a Yankees fan, more importantly, I am still a baseball fan. So I appreciate these things. And Guerrero was my... One of my favorite non-Yankee players, so yeah, just seems to make sense. I love this sort of stuff. It's it's Paul D to a T. (laughs) But in any case, but in any case, one is we just recently dropped the new video for the first episode, and it's really gone very well. But the thing that's really surprised me, at least on my front, Patrick, is that people are somewhat seeing it as a face reveal. At least on my part, they know what you look like, and which is strange (laughs) because my my photo is out there. You know, you type in my you know, ridiculously long last name or even my personal account that I'll comment with on YouTube when I don't choose to use the AD History account. My face is right there. And the one thing that you seem to be a bit surprised about is the beard.
2: Yeah, people really didn't see that coming. And welcome to the club, Paul. And trust me, face reveals. A lot of people tend to think face reveals just this one time thing. But I've I've shown my feet. I think I've shown my face in my second video I ever made. And I do a weekly series where I show my face on Name explain. And I still get comments going, whoa, I've never seen your face before. Trust me, people don't stop. People have their own, everyone has their own little face reveal. So like, you'll be getting that comment for quite a bit of time coming, I imagine, if it's anything like my case. Hey,
0: I'm cool with that. Mm. I don't know what it is necessarily about my voice that doesn't suggest that uh, I would be wearing a beard, (laughs) you know, uh, only you guys can tell me that wherever you're listening or watching. But that's a, we'll get back to that another time. Today, we're doing something that is very timely and very interesting, which is I'm going into the history of one St. Nicholas of Myra, which, of course, is the direct inspiration for Santa Claus. And that couldn't be more appropriate at this time. And you are tackling the dysfunctional progeny of now the late Constantine the Great.
2: Yeah. So Constantine's follow up, his three sons. um, That's an interesting case there. It's a really fascinating thing. It's almost sad to an extent. Um, Really interesting. Looking forward to sharing that with you all today.
0: No, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that, to be sure. I always am. You always do great stuff here. And we're going to jump right into this. So wherever you're listening, with all this done and out of the way, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary, AD History Podcast, Ground Rules. What? Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are were important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different
2: country. Okay, so, Paul, it is officially December. That means the holiday season is fast approaching. So what better way is there to bring in this most wonderful time of the year than talking about jolly old Saint Nick himself and his death?
0: I couldn't agree more, because in this particular decade that this particular episode covers, Saint Nicholas of Myra, the main inspiration for the one that we know as Santa Claus, dies in 343 AD. But what we're going to try to do here is get past the saint and try to get to the man. It's not easy trying to get and punch through the hagiography when it comes to any saint, but whereas a hagiography is looking to extol their their greater and more theologically significant virtues. We're looking as much for the human side of this, and it's not easy. But let me tell you a story, and you might even believe it. And I think it is best to set the scene. Perhaps one of the best and most important Christian saints that deeply influence and impact our modern HD world, none is known better than St. Nicholas of Myra. St. Nicholas of Myra is the primary inspiration that we know for Santa Claus. But why? Who was the man from which his all-important characters derive? What do we actually know about him? And the answer is, not a hell of a lot in terms of the man himself. In time, he would apparently ascend to the post of becoming Bishop of Myra, which is located in modern-day Turkey. In fact, Turkey is very much, modern Turkey was Nicholas's homeland where he would reach the greatest public prominence. And in addition to the influence of Santa Claus, Nicholas of Myra is the patron saint of countless professions and ways of life. And you'll find out more just in a bit. What St. Nicholas is most best known for is a particular story. And in this case, it goes as such. St. Nicholas of Myra, for reasons that we'll get into later, found himself a fairly wealthy young man. And he finds out about a businessman that has three daughters. There doesn't appear to be a mother in the equation, so it's a father and three daughters. And this fellow was apparently very, very wealthy, but had recently come into financial destitution. The story doesn't really go into why, but that's not even so important. What is important to know is that since he's become Destitute financially, he has a serious problem. All three of his daughters at that period in time in that place are of marriage age. However, given some of the customs at the time, a daughter that you're looking to marry off, at least in his case, required a dowry, meaning there had to be some connection of tangible wealth involved with whoever the groom may be. And he couldn't provide that. And apparently, the situation as the story goes, emphasize as the story goes. He became so desperate, he even began mulling the idea that he would have to put his daughters into prostitution. That's the severity of this. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's, um, it's quite an extreme measure to have to go to.
0: Yes, and so apparently the young St. Nicholas finds out about this in his late teens, early 20s. And of course, as we will come to find, generosity and benevolence are very much, as you would imagine, a key portion of his character. So what he does is, late for the first night, he goes to the window of the house of the father with the three marriage-age daughters, and he tosses a bag of coins in through the window. And they wake up the next day, and they see this here. They don't know how they got it, but they're overjoyed. And it's enough to serve as the dowry for one. Of his daughters. The next night, Nicholas comes back again, tosses it through the window. They wake up the next morning, mind totally blown, and it's enough for the dowry for two of his daughters. But at this point, the father is obviously becoming very curious as to who this anonymous benefactor actually is. And so he decides on this third night when Nicholas would come again, to be laying in wait just to find out what's going on here exactly. Sure enough, Nicholas shows up, and as soon as he tosses it over, the dad is waiting there, and he's asking, you know, why are you doing this? What's this all about? But the important thing in terms of the conversation that those two had is that Nicholas made one caveat. He wanted nothing in return, it was absolutely supposed to be an anonymous act of charity. The only thing Nicholas asked of the father was tell nobody. He didn't want to be known for this. Not that he was worried about other people coming and trying to hit him up, you know, which is, would be a realistic thing, <laughs> all no, told. Yeah, if you win the lottery, generally you try not to advertise it, but <laughs> I don't think that was the case here. I think, from what I understand, the idea behind the story itself, and it is a story, is the anonymous generosity. Let's put it this way. St. Nicholas would not have been a big fan of donating a whole bunch of money to a hospital and having a new wing named after no. him. That's not his thing. And,
2: and I, think that's, I think that's probably the, the way a lot of us want to be if we were to have money. I, I, I refuse to believe otherwise. Most of us would want to be that level of wealthy, I suppose, and act like that if we were to come into wealth. So to show Nicholas doing that is it's incredible. It's really great, great thing to see in this podcast, which is for so long, just when people out for themselves more or less in one way or another. So much self-interest. Yeah. See someone who's got little to no self-interest is, is really refreshing.
0: It is. And so as I was mentioning kind of briefly earlier, Nicholas of Myra is the patron saint to countless professions mm. and ways of life. And I've done some looking into this, but some of them include sailors and fishermen, which will make sense a little bit. The false accused, which will definitely make a little bit more sense in a bit. Brewers. And oddly enough, though, I have found conflicting information on this.
2: Broadcasters. That is so bizarre. Like, I wonder when he became the patron saint of broadcasters, because I can't imagine a broadcaster in any capacity existing before at least even before radio came into being i can't feel like an old-fashioned equivalent. Yeah. i know in ways that like the word video existed in latin it means i see so it kind of makes sense in what concept did a broadcaster exist back then or when did he become the patron saint of broadcasters i wonder
0: well that's really where it comes down to the conflicting information part mm. so for the most part interestingly enough actually the patron saint of communicators mm. which would be including broadcasters in this case, is actually attributed to the patron saint being the archangel Gabriel. Okay. So there's some conflicting information in here. And that makes sense because he
2: communicated that message to Mary, I guess.
0: Yes. And I believe Pope Pius XII in the early 50s also appointed a patron saint of television as well. And uh, it's a female saint as well. I forget her name, but I believe she's of Assisi, but that's Hmm. not so important. However, yeah, I mean, it's either Nicholas or or Gabriel. At least plausibly, he's our guy. He's our guy. He's our, should, he, he's our guy. And it's also to interesting him. to yeah, and it's also interesting to note this. Is the other thing I learned recently hmm. is that as new developments come technologically, and new professions, new ways of life, the Church will appoint patron saints as is necessary. So it's not like a stone cold thing from the past.
2: How, it's adaptive. How fascinating! So it could be like just a flat-out patron saint of podcasts, or patron saint of YouTube at one point in the future.
0: Whoever that might be, goodness, mm. I would like to see the steel cage match to determine <laughs> that one to be sure. I think that's the only way it can go down. Yeah, and everybody's got to shell out hundred bucks to watch it. But, <laughs> but he's also the patron saint of brewers, and of course, as you would imagine, based on the story we just told, he is also the patron saint of
2: prostitutes yeah the oldest the oldest uh profession in the books a lot of people like to claim so it's broadcasting very modern prostitution very old so got all his bases covered that's it, nick
0: yeah and there's a lot more too those are just the ones that i thought that would be the most interesting for our discussion though it should be noted in this case that it is extremely difficult to parse out the historically plausible accounts from hagiography Mm. meaning biography of saints, for those who may not be familiar with the term. And though a hagiography is not historically insignificant, given the impact it may have on greater attitudes or events, they don't tell you that much of the very human sign of the Satan equation. And, you know, Nicholas of Meyer right here is no different. So we start talking about his early life. Where did this guy come from? What is his background? And Nicholas was believed to have been born in Patara in coastal southwestern modern-day Turkey around 270 AD. And apparently Nicholas was the son of a very wealthy Greek family, likely making their personal fortune in commerce. And it is said that both of his parents were highly devout Christians, which you, you know, kind of expect to some degree, yeah. I suppose who also had a great deal of trouble conceiving a child prior to Nicholas's birth. So he's kind of the the golden treasure child that they had been working so hard. And there are many parents out there mm. that can sympathize with such difficulties. This happens in antiquity. It happens in the modern mm. day. I think it's a struggle that is very human, mm. especially that it endures through time. However, as the legend of Nicholas goes, he was named after his uncle, who was also a Christian bishop. However, Nicholas was to lose his parents on the early side of life. We're literally talking like late teenagers, Mm. early 20s, which, as I mentioned, made him young and quite wealthy, Mm. though he did not mismanage his fortune, as we so often see in these cases, both back then and today. Yeah, today. However, what he is best known for, unsurprisingly, is his remarkable, generous nature. Especially, as we mentioned, that anonymous generosity. We think back to that story of the dowry and him throwing it through the windows. I mean, that so clearly illustrates so many of the most important fundamental seeds of the figure that we know today in our HD world as Santa Claus.
2: And what I find interesting, Paul, is like how much documentation do we have on this St. Nicholas? Did he actually exist? Or has it just been like you said at the start that there's not a lot we know about him? Like, is there anything we know for sure? Did this guy actually exist? So that had been a debate for a long time. Mm. Uh, but apparently they have
0: found some documentation that did mention a certain interaction that he had that was written a little under a century after uh his his particular acts a little under a century after he died, written by essentially anonymous Greek authors, and it's believed possibly a fragment of a bigger work. But simply put, it hasn't been found. And of course the other difficulty here is that nobody wrote about him while he was alive. And Patrick, I know this is a line that you and I and longtime listeners of A D history have run into more than once. Yeah
2: yeah it's always seems to be the case but that's just we're in such early stages of AD history still in the grand scheme of things like it's going to be hard to come across more definitive stuff but let's so let's err on the side of optimism and say saint nicholas did exist so we've heard the story of the three daughters but like did he do anything else to earn his legacy is there any other stories about this man other than just keeping some daughters happy and keeping him off the streets
0: uh, well, that, that's really, just a little really the, the extreme of that story that makes it so dramatic, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Well, so the answer is there's a number of them. And I'm not exactly sure where the process was at this particular point in time. But I know today, specifically, like, say, with the Catholic Church, they require three miracles in order to bestow canonization and make somebody a saint. Mm. And some of these stories, undoubtedly, especially considering they, they directly connect to the patron saint of a particular profession or way of life will make a lot of sense. And here's a few of them that are really the greatest one. And the last one we talk about is actually the most historically plausible one. And the first story in this case was the story of the calming of the storm at sea. Very, very Jesus of Nazareth in this Mm. respect. But it's not the Sea of Galilee in this kind of this. We're talking about the Eastern Mediterranean here. The main reason Nicholas is the patron saint of sailors and mariners and fishermen, as you'd imagine, as we mentioned before is very likely due to the story of including Nicholas traveling at sea. And as a young man of some wealth who obviously was very interested in Christianity before he ever came into the priesthood and became a bishop and all of that, he decided to use a portion of that wealth to go and visit the Holy Land, and he decided to travel by sea. And apparently during the trip, a great storm, a huge squall, hit the vessel that he was sailing on during his trip to Palestine. and. As the story goes, Nicholas began to pray and pray and pray some more, after which the storm began to subside and the seas calmed, and all aboard credited Nicholas's prayer to saving their lives from that storm.
2: This reminds me so much of the story of Martin Luther, where, um... Martin Luther supposedly was on a storm on on a boat in the middle of a storm, and he prayed to God, saying, "Oh, if you calm this storm, I will become a monk." And the storm did come, that led him on his own path to Christianity, away from the law, because he was originally a lawyer. Um, there's a lot of similarities there. And I just find that interesting.
0: Yeah he he never he never lost that litigious quality about him, to be no, sure. Oh, no, yeah. I look forward to talking about him in the in the future when we finally get to. Yes, yeah. Anyway, so. That most certainly would count, I would think, as what we would consider, at least in our minds. Oh, yeah, that's that's definitely a miracle that you would hear pretty much from the Bible, almost mm-hmm. no doubt it is, because Jesus, you know, for all intents and purposes, did the same thing on the Sea of Galilee. The next thing he did, which is could easily be a modern day miracle, might I add, in his later life, once he became bishop of Myra. Yeah. Nicholas was encouraged by some of the people of Myra to approach Emperor Constantine because the locals believed that their imperial tax burden was just too high. And of course, Nicholas, kind of cultivating this idea as a saint of being a man of the people, he acted on this request and he sought a personal audience with Constantine himself, which in and of itself is pretty amazing and shows just how far Christianity has ascended that he could even arrange such a meeting just with somebody in that
2: level of power in Rome. Yeah, and just the idea of... Uh, when we think of people... Or when we think of St. Nick interacting with other people, we think elves, Mrs. Claus, Rudolph, the rest of the reindeers. Maybe the are yeah. too and the Easter Bunny. We never think about St. Nick interacting with Constantine the Great. And that's just so... So crazy. It's it's obviously a lot more accurate than the other ones I suggested. Um, I just think that's absolutely bonkers that Santa Claus talked to Constantine in real life. That's just just great. And and, told him to lower taxes.
0: Well, yeah, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Nicholas got the audience and managed to convince Constantine to lower the taxation rate of Myra significantly, after which Constantine gave Nicholas a signed and sealed decree to formalize this decision he had made. But there are two versions of the story from here. Whichever you choose to believe, both of them are kind of funny in their own right. So, the first one is, a day or two later, Constantine was approached by his financial advisors, telling him that they will miss out on an enormous amount of tax revenue should he let this new decree pass for Myra, and all the taxation that that would occur. However, apparently, Nicholas, shortly after his initial meeting with Constantine, then took the official decree and threw it into the sea. <laughs> yeah, he threw yeah. it into the sea, presumably. Presumably, so it could never be returned, creating a fait accompli. So, when Nicholas was called back to Constantine and Constantine tried to backpedal on this, the emperor could not rescind the document that nobody would ever be able to find Mm. because at this point it might as well not exist, which I think is kind of strange from a legal ace standpoint of view, but that's just how the story goes. Yeah. The second one Nicholas was called back by Constantine only to be told by Constantine that. To Nicholas that he couldn't follow through it's just it 's just too much, Nicholas then went to inform him that it was too late. His new taxation edict for Myra was already effect in Myra, and to verify this claim, Constantine dispatched a writer to witness this for himself and to confirm what Nicholas was saying is true, which apparently it was now, when I say this could easily be what we would call a modern miracle. Imagine trying to pull this off with the IRS. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's quite the miracle. Modern <laughs> miracle. To get taxes oh. sorted out, like, to get taxes lowered. That That's a miracle unto itself.
0: Yeah, and, and on the decree of just a single human mm. being, no less. If you've dealt with the IRS, and chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you have, you can appreciate... The gravity of this, uh, you know, of this story, impossible miracle, certainly a modern day miracle in our view. Yeah. The other, another story, of course, that he's known for, this is very much one that shows off his incredible zeal. And this actually, it takes place at the first council of Nicaea that you and I talked so much about. Mm. And the whole Arian conflict, and is Jesus co-equal, or is he a subordinate deity made by God? Did he exist into eternity? If you've heard AD history in the last few episodes, these are concepts you are now very familiar with. So when he went there, he was very much on the side that opposed Arius. So St. Alexander of Alexandria, the bishop, and the idea that he was co-equal with God— he lived, he, he was God made man, he, he died, he went back into this non-corporeal form and he existed like God from the beginning. They're one in the same. And this, of course, this whole thing that got called by Constantine that he oversaw at least part of it and yeah. invited a ton of Christian bishops from the empire. I think they said they invited as many as 800, maybe it was 1800. Yeah, it makes
2: sense for him to be there.
0: It makes yeah. total sense for him to be there. And so, as you can imagine, this must have been a grueling affair going back and forth on this particular point. And in the case of you know Nicholas, he got so fed up and so angry at Arius that he literally got up and smacked him across <laughs> the head. Constantine was not amused. And it seems, if I understand correctly, that St. Nicholas of Myra was defrocked for a time and even thrown in prison for a short time gosh santa in jail yeah santa in prison can you possibly believe it yeah constantine was definitely not amused no. but you know what who who could be that surprised and you know who is he to judge in this case my goodness he's done a lot worse <laughs> yeah, than that
2: yeah yeah he kind yes yeah, that's the least of his worries
0: And so how do we know Nicholas was here? Well, basically, there are several rosters of attendees, though, as I mentioned in the episode about the Council of Nicaea, there's not a definitive number of how many attended. But there is one roster that shows the attendance of 200 bishops, and there's a few other that have 300. And though Nicholas of Myra is not on the one of the 200, apparently he appears in a few of the rosters that include 300 attendees. So this is another scrap of evidence here that's talking, you know, that's speaking to there was a St. Nicholas of Myra, just establishing that as I understand it. But we get to a point since we're talking about historical documentation and, and really getting into the hard history of this, we're now getting to the story that most certainly gives the most historical plausibility because it has to do with an act that he did, which I suppose in a way is a miracle, but once again, it could easily be a modern-day miracle as well. And that is the Proxus Dei Stratulatus, which, of course, translated from Latin into English, is the practice of military officers. And this, like I said, was the portion that is accredited to an anonymous Greek author right around the end of the 4th, beginning of the 5th century. So this is the closest thing we have to written documentation that is at least remotely close to St. Nicholas of Myra's life. So in this case, the story surrounds a trio of Roman soldiers that were sentenced to death as seemingly innocent men occurring in or near Myra. What exactly they were accused of, I do not know nor is it entirely clear to me on what basis they were believed innocent. However, apparently Nicholas was entirely convinced of their innocence. When Nicholas found out about their plight and confirmed that they were still alive, he rushed to the site of the execution. And upon arrival, the three soldiers were already bound and hooded and Awaiting the executioner's axe. Now that really paints a picture <laughs> yeah. in your mind, does it not? Yeah, it does. Rather
2: that final moments.
0: And it is said that Nicholas physically held back the first blow of the executioner's axe. And somehow, based on the fact that bishops most certainly had a lot more personal power in these days, they they represented the community they. They served in both spiritual and civil matters. You know, the whole concept of the separation of church and state doesn't come, at least as we know it, until much later on, you know, through the European Renaissance, not the Renaissance, but the European Mm -hmm. Enlightenment. So he's able to kind of exercise some kind of authority in a number of fields, and this apparently would be one of them. But in any case, he managed to stay the execution. And after this, Nicholas made haste and quickly sought out the local Roman governor, to get to the bottom of this case, because that Roman governor was the one who had convicted them. And when he did, the governor begged for forgiveness and claimed to Nicholas that he was forced to condemn these men on the instruction of a pair of local administrators. Nicholas was not yet entirely satisfied of what was going no. on here and decided to do some deeper digging. After Nicholas was, did his further digging, he came to find that the local governor that he spoke to condemn the three soldiers, and that he was indeed bribed to do so. And you can imagine this did not sit well with Nicholas. I'd like to think this wouldn't have sat well with anyone. Yeah. And he basically told the guy that he was going to take this case directly to Constantine due to the corruption involved. After that, the governor literally begged Nicholas to change his mind. And Nicholas chose to change his mind and not bring it to Constantine's attention, though he made it very clear that they would be released and that he would never forgive nor forget what had occurred there.
2: That is a very dramatic story, Paul, but like. So, what, what? Why is this more historically plausible? You sort of said this is a very much more defined theme, but why is this? Why have we got yeah. more evidence for this one behind, say, um, the three daughters and the um, and the money through the and the money in the bags?
0: It comes to that that very near uh, anonymous Greek anonymous okay. author okay. account of this, and it's also pretty much as I understand it the first story of Saint Nicholas of Myra that was actually translated from Greek into Latin. Mm-hmm. And that would Latin speakers would have first learned of St. Nicholas of Myra. It's not great evidence because you want a lot more. And on top of that, it's very likely it could have been a work, part of a greater work that talked about Nicholas. Okay. We may never know that. Yeah. But it's definitely considered the most historically plausible of all of these great stories that are
2: attributed to him. And just just out of curiosity, is there any other st- documentation minus this sort of stuff, like anything else that we can further prove his existence?
0: Well, you know, when we start getting into the topic of proving existence mm. in this case, there was one issue that had cropped up for a very long time, which is that there are two very prominent St. Nicholas's, And mm. as I understand it, both of those St. are extremely prominent and important in the Orthodox side of Christianity. And if, I, if I'm if i correct, also specifically The Russian Orthodox sect of Christianity. And for some time, apparently, there was some merging of these two. Now, here's the thing. The St. Nicholas that I'm talking about that they got them confused with is known as St. Nicholas of Sion, who Hmm. lived just about two centuries after St. Nicholas of Myra. And the case of St. Nicholas of Sion, he died in 564 A.D., And it's important to note in this case that he was a monk, whereas St. Nicholas of Myra was just a bishop. He was not a monk in any way. And so for a long period of time, they started getting merged into a single individual with their acts, deeds, and words attributed to both sides of really this hybrid figure at this point. Now, there are two things that are important to note. As I said, Nicholas of Myra, not a monk. No. Nicholas of Sion was a monk. And anytime, apparently, as I understand it, insofar as writing exists about the two, especially the more historically plausible stuff, Nicholas of Myra is referred to as hagios, which is the type of saint that would be for somebody that wasn't a monk. Mm-hmm. But now there's also one other thing that I found that was quite interesting is that and apparently this came recently. I think there's some validity to it based on what I've seen. Because for a long time, a lot of religious history scholars and theologians began to think that maybe Nicholas of Myra didn't exist. Apparently, they found an account where Nicholas of Sion, it was written that he actually traveled to Myra, obviously after Nicholas of Myra's death, to go visit and
2: celebrate the feast of St. Nicholas of Myra. And a fun fact, Paul. Two guys. Fun fact, Paul. I just realized, I just did some checking myself. Today, uh, the day we're recording this is saint nicholas's feast day
0: no kidding Yeah,
2: it's even the fifth or the sixth in the west so we'll take that oh yeah because yeah because
0: you're dealing with the yeah, yeah okay i understand i understand well patrick yeah. everybody listening or watching happy saint nicholas of myra day yeah
2: happy saint nicholas of myra day and that's
0: that's a great cool oh man yeah good and just on when you me, mentioned his that.
2: feast just then was, oh this is literally his feast day
0: you know, you couldn't you couldn't have made that any better, no, right? No,
2: it's all fitted quite together. Unfortunately, when this comes out, it won't be the same day, but we're recording on the day and that's what matters. Yes, it
0: is. <laughs> so from what I understand, it's reasonably certain from a historical standpoint that these were two distinct characters living two distinct lives hmm. a couple of centuries apart. You know, uh, there's nothing I think is more more funny than the idea that you and I and our life could get wrapped up in the life of somebody who has a very similar name that did very similar things but so happened to be living at in the early 19th century you know
2: like that time i i I got rid of all the snakes in ireland paul it was just a massive coincidence (laughs) you still have to tell me how you pulled that off it was just a coincidence man i had a big rake i can't just push them aside (laughs) it's just it was just a big coincidence just having to be called patrick and do the same thing (laughs) no well I, i could
0: i could not be happier that my birthday falls exactly on your day exactly it all, your day. it all
2: connects but one last thing i want to say is i uh, yeah. we, we all know the myth of st nick johnny saint Nick, father christmas uh santa claus i want to hear more about i i want more people to celebrate the actual life of the real Well, we'll say real for all intents and purposes real saint nicholas because it's one of fascination imagine like a proper like i, I won't call it a christmas film like a proper adaptation retelling of this man's life battling with constantine saving these people i think i think there's such an amazing story to be told there maybe it has been told and i haven't looked the right places but it's such an incredible story to be told there about the real saint nick and paul thank you very much for sharing it not just with myself but with the ad listener with the um, ad audience ship AD well you Bob know what, the audience blur got there in the end
0: You know, just all the stars aligned on this one. Mm. And I I do find a certain personal interest in trying to hash out, you know, effectively the the saint and the man and getting Mm. a better idea of who he was. But more importantly, I really wanted to give the listeners some grounding and greater understanding of the one that we we so often take for granted culturally which of course is the figure of Santa Claus you know if you're if you're christian you obviously you know ha- grew up with christmas even if you're not oh, yeah. it still happens like yeah. l- look at japan yeah They're, they they really they well i would say they probably are more into the very gift giving part of it but they still celebrate the holiday they understand the, the generosity part of it and they put their own cultural adaptation to it which i i love seeing things like that that yeah. is so cool and In this case, you can kind of see where Nicholas of Myra and Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Pa Noel, you can see where the overlap is on the fictional imaginary Venn diagram Mm. and how it came about. But of course, one of the big things that I still find just funny as hell is that literally this St. Nicholas, the original St. Nicholas of Myra literally was growing up on the shores of the beautiful eastern Mediterranean, yeah. whereas the Santa Claus we know is literally relocated up in, in the Arctic Circle.
2: Yeah, like it's quite far from the home we're associating with. This, this was a very uh, Mediterranean Father Christmas, and I'm a big fan of that.
0: Hoorah, no doubt. <laughs> so I am very happy to have shared this all with you, and of course you, Patrick. Thank you. And wherever you may be listening, whether you celebrate Christmas Or you do not, but certainly you're quite familiar with Santa Claus. I think it's pretty darn impossible in most cases and all the places in the world, certainly in the West, Mm. to not be familiar with them, even if you aren't Christian and taking that moment to say, "Okay, yeah, I think I get where this is coming from now. This makes more sense. This is definitely one of those important micro narratives that we like to focus on that make the greater macro narrative that create our hd world and with that we'll be back right after word from one
1: anna Domine. this is the ad history podcast keep up with the show and join the discussion by following ad history on twitter with the handle at ad history pc and the hashtag ad history check us out over on facebook instagram and youtube by searching ad history podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com/slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick.
0: Now, Patrick, obviously, we've talked about Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, Constantine the Great, Constantine the son of Constantius I, but eventually he would perish, as we mentioned in our prior episode. And what did that mean? That meant that it was taken over by his progeny. And needless to say, that was an interesting affair. So with all of that in mind and all of this out of the way, Mr. Foot,
2: Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, this, <laughs> this is where things kind of take a turn for Rome once again. Um, so, as we covered in the last episode, by 340 AD, Constantine has met, it, has met his end. He was long dead. But not only did he reunify the empire under one emperor, he also set Rome and, of course, in turn, modern Europe on the path to Christianity that we're still in to this day. Europe, the Western Roman Empire, by and large, still a primarily Christian continent. So, how could anyone follow up that act? Well, simply put, one person didn't. Uh, Constantine's destruction of the Di- of Diocletian's tetrarchy meant that the title to emperor was once again inherited through uh, heirs, through sons, through adopted sons. However, however, Rome got there, but that was gone. Yeah, we keep yeah. coming back to this, mm-hmm. and that constantine left three sons behind and which one of them would become emperor well here's the thing paul all three of them did and upon his death oh th- boy yeah it's, it feels like uh, i've only watched a couple episodes of succession but i'm getting those sort of vibes from this if you watch any of succession
0: this does not appear to be what we like to call a lasting formula for stability if Mm. the history we've covered is any indication so far.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so upon his death, the three sons of Constantine split the empire between themselves and ruled over these separate areas. And if there's one thing brothers are best known for doing with one another, it's fighting. And normally this comes out in the form of competitiveness and play wrestling. And Paul, me and you, are both siblings of solely brothers. So... This one kind of hits so, especially I'm I'm one of three myself.
0: Well, in in this case, you are the youngest of three. I am the yes. oldest of two. Yeah. So I know what, exactly what it's like. But luckily, my brother and I, whom you are all now <laughs> familiar with, of, yeah, course, of course,
2: of course, yeah,
0: are are the closest of friends. So, well, early on, believe me, we fought, fought, and and injured each other quite <laughs> significantly in the process. But eventually, that passed. But luckily. Well, not luckily. It's luckily for us, but in this case, these sons of Constantine certainly did not grow out of it.
2: No, and Paul, you and your brother, and me and my brothers, we didn't have an empire to rule either. And my they God. still have the bedroom, of course, who got the top bunk.
0: <laughs> well, I always got the, the one I wanted, <laughs> <Of course. laughs> and usually it meant the top bunk. Basically, it was... If you could dethrone me from up there, it's all yours. And he never could.
2: As the elder sibling, Paul, I'm sure you always got the top bunk, and I'm sure you always got the nicer PlayStation controller.
0: <laughs> I was never like that. We always had good PlayStation controllers between <laughs> us. Amazingly, there was a lot of sharing and cooperation, but we still did beat the hell out of, of each course, other. Who Why? Because it.
2: we were brothers. Exactly. Uh, so, from mine and Paul's own experiences of being brothers, it's suffice to say, this joint rulership of three brothers didn't go. Too well, but before we talk about these three brothers, it's worth talking about the fourth son. Uh, I say the fourth son; he was actually the first son. Uh, this was Crispus or Crispus, however we pronounce that here. And he I was like Christmas. Crispus, I say Crispus. It sounds close to Christmas, doesn't it? We're, we're in December yes. and crispy <laughs> and crispy. Yes, and he was Constantine's firstborn with his first wife of a uh, Minervina, and it was he was born in around three hundred AD. But died in just three twenty six A D, and his death, the death of Constantine's first son, is a absolutely wild story. If if it's true that being, Uh, it's (laughs) for it's for Crispus was sentenced to death by his very own father, and this is because Crispus was having an affair with Constantine's second wife Fausta. Imagine. I don't even know if I want to imagine that. Imagine.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Talk about keeping it in the family. Yeah.
2: Uh, but uh. there is a theory that this wasn't actually happening. And it was a conspiracy theory Fausta set up saying, hey, I've been sleeping with your eldest son, Constantine. Your eldest son's been sleeping with me to get Christmas killed. And it's just one of those crazy stories you won't ever know the full details of.
0: Well, unfortunately, so. Mm. I mean, well, to some extent, to be sure. And, but, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we've got to ask, so uh, yeah. Why would. Go, please go on. No, we've got to ask, why would Faustus want Crispus dead? And I guess. Well, this is a good hmm. question because why why would she? I guess, I mean, this is my theorizing, but by the time Crispus, but by this time, by 326 AD, so uh, Constantine was married to Fausta and he'd already so, had, he, he would definitely have had at least one child. No, let me see. Yeah. He had already had all three sons with Fausta, Of course, if Christmas was still alive, he would have had way more claim to the Empire than Faustus' Faustus's own children. So I imagine, I guess that's probably why she'd want him dead, so her children could get the throne, as opposed to this firstborn of Constantine, who hereditarily would have been more likely to take it.
0: I just had just the most ridiculous thought, and if, you, if you're if you going to understand this, because it's, it's basically kind of coded in euphemism, I hear this whole story and all of the kind of intricacies of it and who's in whose bed and who wants mm. who dead. When I hear this, the first thing that came to mind, and, I, and I'm not going to lie, <laughs> is what's known as Rule 34. <laughs>
2: yeah you know cool. rule 34. I, I i'm familiar with rule, rule 34 paul yeah we're not going to
0: explain that you can no. look it up on your own all i thought when i saw that i was like oh man that's so rule 34. Yeah,
2: that's some history zone rule 34 that was yeah. happening way before the internet was ever happening <sighs>
0: Oh, the yeah. Romans. The Romans did rule 34 to death before there was such a thing. <laughs> Goodness gracious.
2: Yeah. So,
0: gross tangent over. No, Please go ahead.
2: So let's introduce these actual sons. So that's it's worth mentioning there was a fourth son, but he's not yeah. Yeah, but by the time by the time Constantine is dead, Crispus is well and truly dead. So let's meet the three sons who would go on to become co-emperors. And these are all three sons. They were all born, they were all mothered by Fausta, that second wife second yeah. wife of Constantine. And so keep track with me here, guys. We're going to go over this multiple times because it can get convoluted otherwise. The eldest of these three was Constantine the Second, and he was born in 316 AD. Hmm. A second son was born the following year, constantius II. he was born in 317 ad and finally in circa 320 ad his third son of constance was born uh we'll go with those again because it's clear to see that from yeah, the names l- l- he gave those three sons he had clearly had quite high hopes oh for my them.
0: god imagine trying to call them to dinner yeah constantine constance constantius dinner's ready my goodness
2: yeah. so Something else I wondered is, why didn't he give Crispus this name of Constantine? Because you'd think the first son you'd have would become Constantine II, right? That, that's kind of in my head. You'd call your firstborn child, your firstborn son, the second.
0: Uh, that's usually how it goes down, but clearly not here. And so why didn't he give that? Why, uh, why was that not
2: bestowed? So my theory on this is that I checked Crispus was born before Constantine became emperor. And I can't remember Constantine's early life. Don't know how much he had been emperor in the bag from so on. So perhaps Crispus was born when Constantine didn't know if he would become emperor or not. So he thought, I won't bother giving him so, a fancy name, that sort of thing.
0: Crispus, uh, let's see here. When was Crispus born again?
2: Christmas was born around 300 AD.
0: Okay, yeah. So we're talking about a good decade mm. before he would end up getting into that Roman civil war that led to the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Yeah. This sounds like it was from a time either, A, when he was still in the court of Diocletian or Mm. uh, Gallierus, or when he managed to free himself from that court and follow his father Constantius up to Gaul and later Britain. So, this is definitely, you know, Crispus definitely predates that true ascension that you see after the Battle of Milvian Bridge and the end of the Civil War with Maxentius.
2: Ascension is a great term. Yeah, Crispus was pre Constantine's ascension. So, you thought, I'm not going to call this one Constantine II because. I'm not probably, there probably wouldn't need to be a Constantine the second, but by the time the actual Constantine the second was born, there was much more reason to have that, to have, to have them in place.
0: Undoubtedly hmm. so. Undoubtedly so. Uh,
2: and of course it's also incredible as well as there being a fourth son, there were two daughters with Faust the two, and this was. So we had Constantina slash St. Constance, as she would become known as, and Helena. Uh, Helena was the youngest of all of these. And I believe Constantina came between Constantius II and Constance. So when went Constantine II, Constantius, Constantina, Constance, Helena, I believe. My
0: God, <laughs> can there be an ounce of creativity here
2: no and so as i mentioned constantina she i didn't do too much research into this but she became quite a big deal unto herself she became saint oh. constance um, Oh, that's an accomplishment i believe in the middle ages saint constance became quite a big deal i'm sure it's something we can delve into even in what we missed
0: i would be very curious yeah. about how that came about
2: no it's really interesting stuff even in what we missed or when it becomes more appropriate when when, when she has her own ascension in christianity clearly because she becomes a saint um we can cover that, but of course these daughters are people in their own right, but unfortunately in ancient Rome, being a woman unfortunately didn't get you as far as it did being a man, so their story, yeah, unfortunately now the empire was given to them simply because of their gender, and that was, that was the time that was that time in history for that's
0: 1700 years ago in ancient Rome what do you want us to tell you
2: exactly yeah but let's focus on these three sons for now it's just worth mentioning those two daughters as well
0: absolutely um
2: they would have spent most their lives knowing the emperor Empire would be theirs and actually they even held rank in the Empire under their father Uh, they were all given the title of Caesar so Constantine the second became Caesar at age seven and he became commander of Gaul at age 10. And Constantius II, he was made Caesar around the same age too. And from what I can gather, Constance became Caesar a little later, around the age of 13.
0: Ooh, that, that is a lot of responsibility thrown onto the, the shoulders. Of the child. Not not that they're actually in the business of ruling at that point. No, no. But still, I mean, that's that's a lot to throw on a kid. Yeah,
2: and this was something because obviously this whole the whole title of Caesar very much came about with Diocletian and the Tetrarchy, but the Tetrarchy... I mean, they had it before, but they kind of
0: repurposed it for the Tetrarchy and how that sort of hierarchy worked Mm. with that being one of the levels of administration and rule.
2: Yeah, but by now, like, the Tetrarchy's gone, so what does being a Caesar even mean at this point? And from what I could gather, it didn't mean much. It was a title emperors gave to their heirs, basically, whoever they felt was going to take over them they would call their sees which kind of relates to its use during the text but it it, it it constantine could have given it to anyone it, it makes most sense to give it to his children it, it's basically kind of like prince at this point it's, it's like oh yeah i mean prince. they're
0: they're operating like royalty essentially yeah.
2: yeah they all knew what their life had in store for them when their father died and of course that happened in 337 a.d so I just want to go over this again, just to be clear, because this is when things start to get a bit convoluted.
0: I think that's awfully important. So have at it, man. <laughs> this is necessary stuff.
2: Constantine the second was the firstborn. Constantius the second was the secondborn, and Constance, just Constance, was the thirdborn. It's just worth drilling that into your head, as the story might get a bit confusing if you forget who is who, and just. Blame Constantine for giving his kids such similar ridiculous names, but
0: yeah, it kind of reminds me of Dion Sanders, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Yeah, giving all their kids—it's either Dion or Diana. Yeah,
2: just just it would be it will get confusing if you just remember that Constantine the second, Constantius the second, Constant in that order. That's that's how these kids were born, and they're the three key players. It's just annoying their names are so freaking similar but let's get on undeniably, to undeniably no but thank
0: you for clearing it up that's
2: fine it's just one of those things because i would get confused i know i would get yeah. confused <laughs> so let's go into splitting up with the empire so in his death constantine left the empire to these three sons however they did not rule it as one unit like his father did the empire was split into not two ways but three ways each brother received an area of land to rule as their own. So Constantine II, who is Paul.
0: Constantine II is what? The second born? The
2: first born. He's the first
0: born. (laughs) See, even I'm having trouble keeping up with this.
2: No, it was the second. So Constantine II, the first born, he got Britannia, Gaul, and Hispania. Uh, Constance, who is
0: second born. Third
2: born. (laughs)
0: Oh, 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 I thought, okay. God, I just can't Constance, so it's my pronunciation. Okay, well. yeah. just,
2: just Constance is the 1st one. I'm
0: having a moment here, <laughs> folks. I'm having a senior moment.
2: He kind of got the eastern half of western Rome. So primarily the Italian peninsula, but some of the Balkans as well. You sort of modern-day creation, mm. that sort of area. And Constantius II, who is? Constantius II is the second born. Is the second born. He got the east, so he got modern Turkey, Greece. He got Constantinople itself, so that's how the yeah, empire so, was I split.
0: mean, That's interesting, actually, when you stop mm. and think about it, because that really is the most prosperous place in the empire.
2: Exactly. And Constantius II, well, w- we'll see what he does with the east.
0: Is it possible to extrapolate some sort of favor by Constantine towards Constantius II based on the territory that he was given?
2: potentially so i didn't do full research into this i'm not a hundred percent sure it was constantine the first who left them these areas i think they may have agreed upon them themselves and if they did it shows that constantius the second was clearly the best at arguing because he clearly got the best chunk here he got all the east um so it would appear yeah so from what i could gather i think they agreed for these areas themselves um constantius the second was either they realized he was the best, because spoiler alert, he's the one we're going to be hearing most of, Constantius II, that Middleborn. Um, surprise, surprise, surprise. Yeah, middleborns, eh? <laughs> yes. No offense to any Middleborn watching. But yeah, um, he clearly either had the persuasive power to get the east, or they realized, no, you're the best of the three of us, you take the east. But it's also worth noting that when they became emperors, they were 21, 20, and 14 years old, so they were quite young, of course, Constance, that youngest, was just fourteen, and he wasn't actually allowed to be emperor at this time, so that meant that Constance, the f- third, youngest, the youngest, he had to have Constantine II, the second, the firstborn, as his regent, so Constantine the second had basically all of Western Rome until he stopped being the regent
0: interesting, interesting, interesting mm. now the three brothers had all other male relatives of their grandfather killed, as I understand it.
2: Yeah, so I, I read a few sort of conflicting stuff. With this This is one of the first things they actually did. They they kind of wanted to make sure they had no usurpers, no one else could or who could also claim the empire. So they thought, if we just kill all the male male siblings, that will deal with them. I believe there were two. They didn't kill their mothers. I think it was their mothers' nephews, and they basically had them under house arrest in their in their palace or something like that. I read.
0: So, where does Christianity come into this all again?
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, Christianity is just what they follow, I suppose. <laughs> In uh, theory. Like I said, th- th- yeah,
0: it just blows me away. Mm. I mean, it's not a surprise you and I are very familiar with this kind of history, but yeah. still. Ah.
2: Yeah, there's just a lot of similar stuff going on here. Uh, so let's dig into their time as emperors. So, uh, by 340 AD constance felt he was old enough to rule without constantine ii as his regent so by now he would have been about 17 i think 17 18 he would have been by now so he felt hey as a teenager yeah i don't need you anymore man so he so and constantine ii didn't fully agree but accepted this and it was also around this year that constantius ii over in the east wanted help in the east um constantius ii called upon his eldest brother constantine ii to help with an attack on the sassanids because obviously constantius ii was in the east he had the sassanid empire the ii right on his tail over there and he wanted his uh eldest brother constantine ii who had britannia Gaul, and hispania to come lend a hand because that's what big brothers are for right helping you beat up the other helping yeah, you beat up the bullies
0: thing to do <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, so Constantine II gladly accepted this invitation. and of course, this required yeah. him to travel from the very west of the empire all the way to the east. And this of course included going through his youngest brothers, Constance, g- in- included going through his land. And bitter after no longer being regent, he decided, while on these journeys, to attack Constance's land just as he passed through. This did not work out for Constantine II, however, as Constance actually expected this attack and launched his own unexpected ambush on Constantine II. Uh, this ambush was too much for Constantine II, and he died here in 340 AD. So the youngest brother killed the eldest brother. So that's, that's kind of not what I think many of us would expect. But yeah, the youngest sibling had it yeah he had the upper hand on the eldest you know. clearly
0: clearly constance did know what to expect and was ready for mm-hmm. it
2: and in constantine ii's death constance took control over his dead brother's land so of constance course. had the entire west empire so that left us with two uh, sons of constantine left where constance in the west and constantius ii in the east that's one brother down two remaining And tensions ran high between Constance in the West and Constantius II in the East. And as I hinted towards Paul, one of the things they felt bitterly different about was uh, religion. They were both Christian, like their father, but they followed different sects and beliefs um, in Christianity. One of those things being about the Aryan belief, I can't remember who landed on what side, but they had different ideas about what elements of their previous pagan religion should carry on into Christianity. Various things like that. Tensions were high.
0: If I remember correctly, and don't take me to court on this, but I'm fairly sure, in the case of Constantius the Second mm. out in the East, he was actually a, a a patron of the Aryan Christian idea.
2: That I I, I would take your word for that, Paul, because like I said, I couldn't find out the, the specifics in my in my brief research, but it was definitely one of them was Aryan, one of them was not. And they yeah. even argued about the issues their father had ironed out back in 325 at the uh, Council of Nicene. Like, these two were just arguing over everything that like this sort of as the established Christianity their father had put together. they were They were ripping to shreds, and a religious civil war felt inevitable, but that actually never came to be, because in 345 AD, Constantius II just said, Hey, Constance, just do Christianity your way. That's fine. And for some reason, he just felt it wasn't something worth fighting over. And while. Well, that, Con- that's
0: an unlikely outcome for what seems to be a uh, a religious crusade that was about to be the ultimate showdown. But yeah. I, I,
2: even for that's my. That's a left turn. Yeah. My sources said we don't exactly know why Constantius II. It, just let it happen we don't know why he just did and while constance got his way with christianity other issues faced him and these issues came in the lands he claimed by defeating his brother constantine ii this part of his empire this new part that he had, he got by killing his brother it felt neglected and this neglect manifested itself in the form of one magnesius uh Magnetius was an army commander. Born in Gaul, and he was deeply unhappy with the lack of attention Constance was giving Gaul, as well of course Hispania and Britannia, and he yeah. wanted him gone. And many clearly agreed with him, as support for Magnetius grew tremendously. And this this kind of feels familiar, Paul. It feels like almost a return of the Barrack emperors.
0: It is, and in so many ways, we obviously we've gone through the Gaul equation before. Mm-hmm. You know, we we in, in some way, on some level, we've heard this tune on another occasion, and when these provinces feel like they are being neglected, and ultimately having to fend for themselves, mm. that's usually a good initial recipe for someone like Magnesius. Yeah,
2: and yeah. So, and while he feels a lot like a barack emperor, he will never actually gain the title of emperor. Uh, so. In 350 AD, Constance was uh, visiting Gaul. I believe he was hunting. He was doing a hunting trip in Gaul, which clearly shows you how much attention he gave it. It was it was his playground, basically. He went there yeah, to hunt. So it would appear. Yeah. And it was here that Magnetius striked. Although he didn't actually strike himself. He actually hired assassins to kill this young emperor while he was in Gaul. And they seem to have done this pretty easily. Um, and with Constance dead, Constance dead, magnesius was the de facto ruler of western rome and like i said he was never deemed an emperor uh i believe his wikipedia page uses that wonderful title of usurper which is a great well that's exactly
0: what he was he was
2: he was and and that's what all these barrack emperors more or less were but they got the title of emperor but no he didn't get that title you
0: know as as far as uh magnesius is concerned though it sounds like he had some rather valid gripes here oh of course he did
2: Yeah, like. Constance didn't do anything with Gaul, Hispania, and Britannia. He just let them be. He was more focused on the land he had initially, that Italian peninsula. Who can blame? Like, say who can blame him, but you know, that was the birthplace of the Empire. I know Rome itself was way past its prime. By now, it was all going on in Constantinople. Yeah. But you got to feel some importance to Rome still. You you would give Rome more attention, I feel. And it's that's, the eternal city but
0: yeah. you know you know how how it is with rome at this point i mean you know right now we have one son that remains and we have one
2: usurper yeah so that gets us to the end of the decade this episode is about so it's quite well Time that Constance died in 350 AD, I think, Paul, because that really helped our podcast here. Uh,
0: without a doubt. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure it happened just that way for just that
2: reason. Mm-hmm. So by 3- 350 AD, there was just one son remaining, Constantius II. And he had all of Eastern Rome, but things were not looking good either side to him. In his west, he had the Usurper, and of course to his east, he had the Sassanids and this rock a half, and, yeah and this is a real rock and a hard play situation and yeah. it would come to a head in the next decade which we'll talk about next episode I'm sure but I just love how to start this episode we had three sons now we have just one they literally died perfectly like it's just fascinating it sounds like a work of fiction it sounds almost like Shakespeare doesn't it uh, and it, yeah, it's it almost like King Lear. A yeah, it's got yeah like it a definitely King has Le- a
0: Shakespearean sense to it. Yeah. Which, so many of these, uh, hey, let's put it this way. He did write Julius Caesar. So yeah. clearly he was thinking like we were, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it reminds me, you know, you had the three daughters in King Lear, that sort of thing. It reminds me so yeah, much yeah, yeah, of all that yeah. sort of stuff Oh, that's actually
0: a really, a really good connection on your part. Good yeah, on well,
2: you. I'm glad my A level English literature pays off for something, Paul. Right. <laughs> it would eventually. And I think if there's any lesson to take home from this one, and Paul, um, you won't understand this, but just don't trust middle siblings. <laughs> I will
0: only take your word for that.
2: <laughs> they're they're a strange being, middle siblings. No, um, and Constantius the second was the winner in all this. You know, he, oh, if winner is the correct term, he's lost two brothers' blessing, but he seemed to not really get on too much with them. I just it's just fascinating to see that that one unified empire that Constantine established. already starting to crumble i mean spoiler alert it's gonna kind of come back in the next decade but it was his own sons no less his own flesh and blood the ones he had dubbed constant the ones he'd basically all called constantine in some way shape or form it was those who started this decline once again
0: i'm looking forward to you picking up on this in our next episode because it's shakespearean it really is it really is shakespearean thank you very much patrick Next time, we'll finish it out. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And yeah. with that, us here, you there. But we'll be back right after a word from Anna domini: This
1: is the AD History Podcast.
0: Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us?
2: You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you,
0: Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader submitted World War II QA column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, We will have a link down in the description.
2: That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care.
0: Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time.
1: Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, Available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at AD History PC, as well as on Facebook by visiting Facebook.com/slash AD History Podcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.